0: We're not asking you to pay attention every day, have the news sort of running in the background. And if it's paying attention to the local elections first because Washington, D.C. is so far away and so chaotic, then do that. Mm. But issue by issue or
1: locality by locality, engaging really matters. I have always been interested in politics. I grew up in a family that fully expected everyone to be fluent in the political news of the day, regardless of age. Case in point, first poem I ever wrote as a child focused on how I felt about President Ronald Reagan. And my feelings were mixed. I loved his hair and I loved his voice, but I didn't like his policy. Anyway. It's in me. When I was 18, I remembered waiting two hours in line at the Sky Dome at Northern Arizona University to cast my vote in my first election. I remember the thrill of participating in democracy. It made me feel like a living, breathing, fully realized human being. I've volunteered on various campaigns. I've phone banked for candidates I believed in. And one of my favorite volunteer jobs of my entire life was walking around my college campus registering people to vote. Look, I know the United States is imperfect, but I have always believed in our capacity to make change happen through the simple process of casting a vote. But when Trump was elected, something in me kind of curled up in a tight ball and went to sleep. And listen, if you're with me here and you're a Trump voter, it's okay. We can still be friends, but I got to speak my truth here. I was devastated by that outcome. I was devastated that politics had become so mean-spirited, so base, or as Taylor Swift would say, so casually cruel in the name of being honest. So I did what a lot of us did. I checked out, I curled up, I bailed. But worst of all, I got cynical. And that cynicism only grew over the four years of Trump's presidency until not even the events of January 6th surprised me. Well that's that's actually not true. Of course I was surprised, but it seemed like it seemed like the kind of thing we all sort of saw coming. But then a few weeks ago, a friend of mine The marvelous Shannon Hunt Scott sent me an invitation to a fundraiser. Now, just to give you a sense of Shannon, she's a philanthropist. But when I say that, I mean it in the deepest, most active sense of the word. She could be kicking it and living her best life, chilled out somewhere. But instead, she and her husband have created the Scott Foundation, which is actively tackling issues like educational equity, social entrepreneurship, social and reproductive justice, and civic engagement. These people are busy making change happen. So I get this invitation to this event for something called the Service First Women's Victory Fund. And I think to myself, what if I just pressed pause on my cynicism long enough to get involved like my friend Shannon here? So I bought a ticket and I went to find out what the heck this fund was all about. Friends, this event blew my mind to smithereens And more than that, it renewed my faith in what is possible. The Service First Women's Victory Fund is a campaign to elevate the collective voice of elected women leaders who have dedicated their lives to serving our country and who know what it means to put service and country over partisan politics. As it says in their boilerplate, together we are building a new normal where service leaders and women lead the way in Congress. I mean, can I get an amen? So you guys, today, I have the joy of having two incredible Congresswomen who represent the fund to talk to us. You are about to meet Representative Chrissy Houlihan, who serves Pennsylvania's 6th District, and Representative Abigail Spanberger, who serves Virginia's 7th District. Just to give you a bit of background on these two incredible people, Representative Houlihan earned her engineering degree from Stanford with an ROTC scholarship that launched her service in the United States Air Force and Air Force Reserves. And later... She earned her MS in technology and policy from MIT. You may have heard of them. Chrissy has also helped lead several thriving Southeastern Pennsylvania companies, including And One, a basketball apparel company, and B-Lab, the organization that launched the B Corporation movement. She went on to serve in Teach for America as a chemistry teacher at Simon Gratz High School in North Philadelphia, and then led and scaled a nonprofit helping thousands of underserved students all across America build their literacy skills. So that's Chrissy. Representative Spanberger began her career in public service as a federal law enforcement officer working narcotics and money laundering cases with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. She later joined the CIA as a case officer where she served abroad collecting intelligence, managing assets and overseeing high profile programs. In 2014, Representative Spanberger left the CIA to begin a career in public service before running for Congress in 2017. Oh, and by the way, Abigail Spanberger is also a Girl Scout leader. So there's that. It is my pleasure and my delight to shut this mouth and finally introduce you to Chrissy and Abigail. I'll see you on the other side. I wanted to begin with, I haven't been involved in politics since Trump got elected. I used to be so in it. I used to be so excited and so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and something about the Trump election just leveled me. And I was one of those really annoying people that was just like, well, fine, I'm gonna sit with my coffee and watch the world fall apart and talk to my friends about it. And that was the extent of my involvement. And then I went to Shannon's event and I was like, all right, well, Shannon's still in it. I guess I'll go and see what she's got going on. And I met you guys and I was like, oh my God, these are grownups that are actually engaged in making democracy work instead of sitting with their coffee, watching CNN, watching the world burn. And I guess what I wanted to begin by asking was, how much did the Trump win have to do with why you got into this kind of public service? This is Abigail.
0: I'll go first. I think it was a combination of so many things. Chrissy and I both had spent our careers engaged in public service or community engagement in one way or another. And for me, watching the real shift in politics that occurred after the 2016 election, frankly, and in the lead up to the 2016 election for me, it was a real moment or time for me to realize this is not what I think our politics should be. This is not how we should fight with each other or debate with each other or really even seek to achieve anything. And I think coming from a a nonpartisan background as it relates to my civic and service to country, there were just so many things that were fundamentally wrong with the way the political discourse had gone in the direction the political discourse had gone. Mm-hmm. And so that's what motivated me. So. It wasn't necessarily his election as a singular action, but mm. kind of all that was swirling around our political discourse at that time really motivated me to get involved directly.
2: Amazing. What about you, Chrissy? So my experience, Brian is like almost the exact opposite of yours, which is I had kind of historically not been engaged in politics. I think the most that I had really ever done is knocked doors on behalf of Obama mm. one day and mm-hmm. Clinton- one day yeah. at the end of elections. then as Abigail was saying, kind of involved in my own form of service and really believe that either working as a member of the military or in growing very good and responsible businesses or yeah. in educating next generations, that was my contribution, either in the for-profit or the nonprofit sector. And I thought that the government, frankly, would take care of itself I was also raised by one Democrat and one Republican in a military family that was not a partisan, certainly, but was very bipartisan. You know, my mm. parents walked to the polls every time and canceled each other's votes out. <laughs> and then came home and had dinner. And so the conversations at the dinner table were always about civility and discourse and the engagement of when the results of an election come out, you know, you salute smartly and you carry on with whatever the results were. But for me, the election... Of President Trump felt really different. And it certainly was also the lead up to the election of President Trump. And it wasn't him per se as a person, but it was rather what we were collectively saying by electing him, you know, about kind of our values and where we were headed as a nation. And, you know, in addition to being a Navy kid, my dad's a Holocaust survivor. And so he's a refugee, came here and really was a beneficiary of the largesse and generosity of our nation. And My oldest daughter is a member of the LGBTQ community. She identifies as queer. And the two of them after the election were pretty devastated. And when your dad and your daughter are in tears, you kind of got to take an inventory and figure out what we can do to be helpful. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of why I think I and and Abigail have a lot in common, which is it was a real call to action in Mm -hmm. a way that I hadn't really felt before in a way that I could be.
1: So actually... Just picking up on that, when I was doing just the background to prepare for this, I was reading your bios, and it seems like all of the women that I had the absolute pleasure of meeting at the event at Shannon's place, each of you have this background that looks like five women lived one woman's life. Chrissy, you were, you know, an Air Force veteran, engineer, entrepreneur, educator, the first woman ever to represent Pennsylvania's 6th District in Congress. Can you talk a little bit about that diverse career path? Explain how you see the trajectory of your career. Because for somebody like me, who's been sort of plowing away at the same gig for 20 plus years, I can't even wrap my mind around it. So how did you see that path for yourself as a leader? This is one of the things I tell my kids as well as pretty much anybody
2: of a younger generation who listen. I think there's a lot of pressure on us as young people and particularly as women and girls to kind of have a passion and to have a purpose that you're following for the rest of your life. But life is really long. I'm 54 and I feel like I'm old. I mean, listen, Nancy Pelosi is 81 years old. So I still have many, many careers left in me and many, many pivots, you know, left in me. I look to Donna Shalala as another example of just a phenomenal woman who's just done so many interesting and helpful things. And I hope to be her someday. So what I would say is it looking at that career kind of from in a linear way, mm-hmm. forward looking, it makes zero sense. You know, looking at it kind of backwards, it makes sense because the through line for me at least is one of service and kind of constantly trying to evaluate. At this point in my life, given where my children are, my husband is, or where we are geographically, what is the thing that I can be doing to be most useful right now with the skills that I have? And what I would honestly say is I'm not one of those people who has this like passion, burning passion for any one thing. I mean, I ran a basketball company and a, a children's literacy company and, you know, all kinds of things like that that have nothing to do with one another, except for I thought at the time that it was the right thing to do for our community and for our family. So I think I would encourage people just to kind of be less hard on themselves.
0: If I can step in, because I don't think Chrissy does a very good job of explaining the through line in all of what it is that she's accomplished. (laughs) When Chrissy really spends some time sort of diving into her background, the through line is that Chrissy is the consummate problem solver. So her service in the Air Force, of course, is driven by her following in her family's footsteps of military service. But then beyond that, she helped found this company, made it very successful, but has this love of science, so decided to become a Teach for America volunteer in a high school. And as she's teaching, she's realizing that the challenges the students are having in their science class at the high school level is actually due to literacy issues that should have been identified or remedied when they were in elementary school. So Chrissy says, okay, well, the, the challenge here is not just that I want to teach science to kids who need you know, a good science teacher, but it's in fact, I'm teaching science to young adults who actually are having trouble comprehending the material not because of what it is, but because their baseline foundational literacy levels are not what they should be. So then Chrissy says, okay, well, I'm going to go out and build a nonprofit <laughs> to help with that. And so that's what I think is extraordinary about Chrissy's career is each pivot point, And she's making that phase, each pivot point in her <laughs> career yeah. is because she identified a problem and said, well, somebody's got to fix it. Yeah. and I think that you know, even when we look at to why Chrissy ran for Congress, it's well, here's a problem, and somebody's got to fix it.
2: And so you're embarrassing me, and
0: thank you. I know, but this is also why she's the one who always sets up the holiday gift exchange because <laughs> there's a problem, and somebody's got to fix it. It's Chrissy.
1: <laughs> That's amazing, and I think for those of us outside of the system, I think the thing that causes the general human like myself, who's not directly involved, the most anxiety is that we worry that the people that are out there trying to make the machine that is the United States run and govern are in it, not because they're problem solvers, but because they're grandstanders or their yeah. ego cases, or they're so myopically focused on their agenda that they can't be bipartisan because that means abandoning a sense of identity they will never abandon. And so for me as an average citizen to hear that the people that are actually solving problems in Washington, they like to solve problems. They woke up like this. It is so reassuring. And that's not a given, which is why I really wanted my listeners to meet you guys. We have to prioritize supporting and funding public servants like you because you're in it to solve problems, which is not the same for everybody.
2: And I think that that now I can have my opportunity to brag on Abigail, who has a very intriguing and very spooky past. Um, (laughs) And every once in a while, something will surface from her time in the agency. And I'll kind of go, that's interesting. You know, every once in a while, while we were over in Europe celebrating the 75th commemoration of D-Day and Abigail starts rolling with her fluent French, you know, and I'm like, wow, how many languages do you speak? Abigail, how many languages do you speak?
0: Well, it depends on what you consider to speak. How many places can I navigate a bus system? That's a different number than how many places can I have any
2: an conversation. And, uh, no, I mean and the French was strong. And I think that there are many languages that she is very capable in. And she sort of just drops that casually in a conversation. And the other thing that I really admire about Abigail is, and you've probably seen or many people who follow politics will see this. She is unabashedly unafraid. And I admire that so much in her because She has no problem speaking truth to power in a way that Washington really needs. And so she'll roll with the things that everybody else would like to be saying. And they're all truths, but they're not the things that most people can say or feel that they're able to say. Mm -hmm. And that I admire very much because when you're talking about solving problems and solving the division that's in this nation more people need to hear that there are people out there who are going to call it like it is. And Abigail
1: is definitely that person. (laughs) Hell yeah, Abigail. And actually, Abigail, so I have a question about that. I mean, your career is fascinating too. When you think about that capacity to speak truth to power, because as a communication coach, a lot of the sort of younger people that I work with, especially women, this is a huge issue. And some of us learn how to do it because life forces us to learn how to do it. So those of us for whom life didn't necessarily force, is there a connection between your work in the CIA and your work that you did just in your career and your ability to speak truth to power? Talk about where that comes from. Is that a muscle that you learned to develop or were you just born like, let me tell (laughs) you?
0: Well, I'm sure my mother would say I was probably born like, let me tell you. (laughs) <laughs> but I I do think my skill set as a former CIA case officer, we were at the agency. There is a real ethos where you are supposed to say what you think. The sort of niceties and well, the not beyond the niceties, the sort of oh that's a wonderful idea, thank you so much, kind of polite <laughs> verbosity that exists sometimes on Capitol Hill and I think other <laughs> places mm-hmm. doesn't exist in the same way at CIA because. You know, whether you're talking about an operation that you're working, a person that you met, steps you want to take forward, if you have any reservations, if you have any concerns, if you have any ideas, you're supposed to bring them forward. You're supposed to say, these are all the great things of what it is I'm working on. These are all the potential shortcomings. Because that's how you keep people safe. You flag all of the concerns that you might have. And, you know, especially when you're overseas and you're communicating essentially through cable traffic, as we call it, so the back and forth writing of record. Mm -hmm. go through the good, the bad, the ugly, Mm -hmm. because you're supposed to, and you have to read into everything and dive into everything. And if you get that cable in where everything is sunshine and roses and there's no sort of like, well, this is the worst case scenario, or this could be the negative Mm -hmm. aspects I perceive here. If that's absent, you're Mm -hmm. automatically suspicious. Like clearly not everything's perfect. right? Um, So I think I'm a little bit more comfortable with, we can always do better and you can always see threats that exist. And that is not necessarily the norm on Capitol Hill is the desire to see threats that exist or to always do better. better. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I naively say, well, surely if people know that, you know, if we just did this one thing better, then they would want to know that. And that's not, I have learned that's not always the case, but
1: yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you another question, because I'm thinking about all of the future women leaders out there that could be listening, current women leaders that might eventually get into public service. What are the hardest leadership lessons that you've had to learn in the past couple of years? This is a very different
2: organization than any organization that I've worked in. And so that has been something that I need to learn to navigate in that, you know, I've spent the last few years trying to understand where the levers of power are. And I don't mean power in the like power sense. I mean, like, how do you get things done? Right. And so because this is an organization that almost by definition is designed for inertia, it's hard to try to figure out how to be one of 435 and one of 535 people who represents your community represents your state and then represents your country in a way that serves the most people possible. Yeah. And so I think that's been a leadership challenge. But for me one of the other things for the last several years has been a reset of what my expectation is of that what leadership is. Sometimes leadership is also listening and watching and seeing you know where you should intersect or interject yourself and sometimes it's okay to watch the scrum. And figure out when's the right time to jump in. At least that's how Washington is, in my opinion, quite different than corporate America or the nonprofit world or frankly, even the military, because you're kind of constantly trying to figure out where all the different people are, all the different issues are and how you're going to make sure that you jump in at the exact right time. For me, it's like either jump rope or like catching a good wave how do you make sure that you're you've got your yourself ready to throw yourself into the wave when it's just at the peak wow fascinating well,
0: and to just sort of expand on that i think that one of the reasons that it's a bit like that is essentially you have in the house side 435 voting members different things that brought them to washington different motivations different priorities different communities different issues that matter back home and so there's also in a normal business setting or in the normal governmental setting, there's this division, there's that division. You're focused on this, you're focused on that. Whereas in Congress, you're constantly saying, okay, well, I focus on exposure related illnesses for veterans. Well, who are the other members that focus on that? And so you're making those relationships so that you can build up broader coalitions. Mm -hmm. And then I also focus on regenerative farming, right? And like Mm -hmm. the intersection of those two things is, Mm -hmm. is not at all. And so then it's who are the other colleagues who want to work on this? And where are the points where I can really work on legislation that matters in that space? And so when you have all these different buckets of issues, mm. you're constantly, it's like you're working on many different projects, but I think unlike many other places, yeah. it can be so different in in scope and size. Uh, that And that's just on the legislative front. That's not even on the representation front or... Right. And And also
1: just the domain expertise that you have to suddenly get smart on regenerative farming and then suddenly you have to get smart. Like you have to, I mean, you must have systems where you just deep dive into these very specific topics that you just go deep, learn it, figure it out, come back make your connections. Yeah, but there's often an alliance on your team as well to do
2: that. And by team, I mean, broader than just the people who work with and for you in your own office. I think that you need to kind of expand your scope. And that's why things like caucuses are so important. And so as Abigail's example with, with regenerative farming and veterans health issues, similarly, I have a STEM and STEAM caucus for women and communities of color, and that stuff is really important for our workforce development and our future. But I also have a caucus that focuses on corporate social responsibility and kind of good, sustainable governance concepts. And what's interesting is Abigail says there's not a, you know, the Venn diagram doesn't intersect for her issues. For mine, you have to kind of challenge yourself and the people who are in each of those organizations to see that there is an intersection. And if they don't see that intersection on these issues, then it's also your responsibility to bring them along and educate them. And that has to do with relationships and trust and all yeah. of those kinds of things, which is hard to do in this environment. And I don't mean like political environment. I mean, like in COVID physical. environment. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> As if it's we really didn't hard. already have the polarization problem, then there's the physical separation, which is crazy question for you because I'm a communication coach. COVID has been a really fascinating time for me to do what I do. And interestingly, one of the biggest talks I'm giving right now is about managing big emotions because, you know, there's no question like the social science is super clear. The people that are able to manage big emotions at work have the highest education levels. They earn the most money. A lot of my work goes to helping people Manage those huge moments of frustration or those huge moments of whatever it is. How do you guys manage those moments where you're like son of a bitch, Abigail? Abigail, how do you manage
2: that? I mean, we have very different approaches. Yeah, I want to hear. it. I'm curious.
0: It depends on the issue. In our jobs, we have the honor, the responsibility, and the ability to see the very best of people's experiences and the very very worst. So when someone is calling their member of Congress's office, there are horrifying stories that we learn about. Hardship, loss, just the deepest types of sadness. And so those big emotions, handling those, handling the what can I do to bring some good to this situation? What can I do to bring some, even just hearing people's stories and knowing that it's going to inform me in the future? That's one bucket where I think that for those of us who are potentially or Particularly empathetic, it just drives the work. And so it is all of the emotion that I feel or that I experience or that this you know, is brought to me from constituents that drives the work that I do. And that is where I you know, direct all that energy is into, okay, you know, I can't fix this circumstance for this person necessarily, depending upon the tragedy, but I can absolutely focus on making sure that we're addressing whatever might've been contributing factors to the circumstance. That's one thing. And that drives the work and keeps me motivated every single day.
2: And I think Um, that's something that we may have in common, which is that I think that pattern recognition and kind of looking to one example or a few examples and seeing something out there that could therefore be addressed and solved is something that I think we have in common. One of the things I really admire about Abigail's Pattern recognition is the passion with which she addresses everything. She, I think, appropriately runs hot on a lot of this stuff because this is really life and death situations for many people. And it's really important that a member who represents people really takes everything to heart and takes everything, frankly, personally, because it is personal yeah so I think that it's good. I admire yeah. that and I hope that I embody some of those characteristics as well. Mm-hmm. well. you do
0: and and then it's in terms of the day-to-day frustrations at work. <laughs> varying levels of productivity when trying to call people's attention to things that I think are yeah. at times flashing red lights. Yeah, um, and so I like to go into places with sort of lists of these are the things I think we should be doing or these are ideas to convey. And so that the kind of peer-to-peer challenges I deal with very differently than the constituent related big emotions, as you called it.
1: And it sounded like Chrissy, like some of your strategies are like going for a swim, going for a walk. I'm imagining without those, you would just lose your mind. You have to go. And I mean, the, the frustration levels and the gruelingness, is that a word of your gigs? I cannot imagine not having that outlet. And I think that saved a lot of working moms A lot of working women, I think those outlets are the only reason we're still standing after almost 20 months of this COVID nightmare. For people that are listening and that have become comfortably apathetic to politics and who see it as a show that we watch instead of seeing our responsibility to it, our civic duty to it, what do you say to people that are watching from the sidelines and just sort of standing at a distance like I've been for the past several years. I would ask of you to please engage.
2: I would say to you that the stakes are way, way too high. And and history shows that people who are apathetic get the government that they deserve. And we are at a really critical inflection point for all of us. And what I would also say is to the point of uh, taking walks and going for swims, we don't all have to be on all the time in order to make a difference. Come in and come out of this and rest in between stay one another and help one another through a really difficult time because we need everybody, but we don't need everybody to collapse and burn out. And so that's also a piece of advice that I would ask of you all.
0: And I would add to that, there's a lot of people in our communities and across our country who need everyone to engage, who need people to focus on who should be elected and who is working hard to bring voices to people who need it most. And so I know that sometimes politics can be rough and things feel chaotic. There's fighting, there's this and that. But I would also argue that part of why people should engage is if you don't like that, be part of changing it. That's one of the reasons why I rant because I don't like that. I want to have a legislator. I wanted a representative for me, for my family, for the community I grew up in it wasn't about these people agree with the representative and these people don't. So therefore, half the voices in the room don't matter. I wanted a representative who would stand before people who disagrees with them heavily and answer questions. I wanted a representative who was trying to sort of lower the temperature. I wanted a representative who was going to say, I'm not right 100% of the time. Or if I believe I am and you challenge me, that just gives me the opportunity to better explain myself and better think through my ideas, my priorities and the policies, I think help adapt them. Mm-hmm. And so I would say if Chrissy's exactly right. It doesn't mean run for office. It doesn't mean make politics your number one only thing, but it means be aware of your local elections and be aware of what's happening in your community and be aware that when People, reasonable, good people who are thoughtful and busy, you know, just take a couple steps back from the political process. The people who are the most sort of maybe aggressive or maybe there for not all the same reasons, that they're the ones that fill that void. And the more people, good, bad, loud, the more people who are engaged in our political process, the better because the competition of ideas is stronger and more fruitful when there are actually more ideas in the realm competing and that's where i think that we are at our healthiest as a society you know we're not asking you to pay attention every day have the news sort of running in the background and if it's paying attention to the local elections first because washington dc is so far away and so chaotic then then do that Mm -hmm. but issue by issue or locality by locality Engaging really matters because when we get, I think, our political process back to a place where it can still be messy and maybe loud and boisterous, but where we know that it's the churn that is actually moving forward, then I think that's a time that I daydream about
2: when we get to that that point. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping that we're helping.
1: Well, fingers crossed. I will add that to my prayer list. (laughs) And I just want to thank you both for being here and for doing all the work that you're doing. Just to put a fire point on this, when I saw you speak, I hadn't been that excited about politics since Barack Obama gave the speech at the DNC, whatever year that was. I mean, it's been so long since I was inspired. And you guys helped me remember that that's an inside job. We can't just be reliant on like the superstars to come to our town and get us excited about politics. To your point, we've got to dig in and make it work because we get the we get the government we deserve. God, Chrissy, that was such a good shit <laughs> think It's terribly original. <laughs> it, it's just true though. It's a great reminder. So I just want to thank you. Keep doing the good work. Thank, thank you, it. Bronwyn. This was really fun, and thank you for all of your yeah. your kind words
0: and thanks for having us up.
1: I mean, how awesome are those two powerhouses? And how refreshing is it to hear voices of sane people doing the work in DC? And I actually think that this is more true than we realize. There are good people on both sides of the aisle doing their best to serve their constituents and their country at large. I really believe this. And this gives me so much hope. But as they say, hope, it is not a strategy. We need action and I hope you will join me in supporting the Service First Women's Victory Fund. There's a link in the show notes and it will take you less than two minutes to donate. It's servicefirstwomensvictoryfund.com, servicefirstwomensvictoryfund.com. Not only does it help these two women that you've just met and their efforts, it also helps to develop the other women that are absolutely crushing it, trying to do what's right for everybody in DC. And it'll help develop the next generation of women who put service of country over politics. Peeps. It's the wave of the future, I got to hope. As always, thank you for being with me today and shine on. We need your light.